You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome to this second Helpings episode of Best Possible Taste, which features interviews from previously aired shows. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight we're starting off with the review of Azure Restaurant in Limerick with food and wine magazine's Rachel Keeley. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Rachel, welcome to the studio this evening. Hi Sharon, thanks for having me. We missed you last month, you were off on your travels, but we'll talk about that another time. Tell us where you're going to talk about tonight. Uh, somewhere a lot closer to home than uh, than where I was last week. Uh, I, I, I'm going to talk tonight about Azura Restaurant in George's Quay in Limerick City Centre. Now I know this restaurant, mm-hmm. however, it is a long time since I was there. And the reason that I was there was whenever Limerick used to run the Love Gourmet Week promotion. Oh yes. Which I thought was a great marketing campaign to get people to try new restaurants. It used to be a week in June and there was value menus in a number of different places for that week and Azure would have been one of the the restaurants we went to. Now I I can remember now it's actually five years ago because my daughter Hannah was only a few months and my parents must have been down and we all piled into the the jeep and the in-laws and everything. It was a real kind of I think probably one of the first meals out that I had with this teeny tiny baby so and it was a memorable occasion for all all the right reasons because we did have fabulous food that night did you yeah and you found that they looked after you as a family and it it worked well yeah yeah yeah. it's um I didn't realize how big it was uh Sharon I I think I always drove past it saw the few seats outside and there just beside the lock bar and on the water I never actually realized that it's enormous inside Uh, there's so much space and plenty of spaces for groups like families especially if you've had the in-laws and everything down and um and there were quite a few parties there and people celebrating and things like that when we were there. So it was a surprise to find this place sort of on my doorstep that I hadn't been to before. If memory serves me correctly, they've lots of nice fish dishes on the menu. They do. For some reason, um, I had always assumed it was pretty much exclusively a fish res- a res- restaurant. But um, but looking at the menu, yes, certainly they do feature some some really nice fish meals. Um, but no, it's quite quite a variety. It's kind of Irish-based uh, with a heavy European influence. So it's, it's all sort of familiar recipes, um, which are executed with a little bit of a twist, you know. Tell us then about your dining experience. How many of you were there that night? There were four of us. Um, we joined what I can only describe as an enormous throng of people outside uh, by the water on a gorgeous summer's evening. Um, late summer, of course, but it was ideal one of those evenings that the sun is splitting the stones and you can't bear to be inside and uh, we were very lucky to be able to get a table uh, outside at Azura restaurant we rang ahead and I think that's the key so you were actually eating outside eating outside Fabulous. yeah felt like we were in the south of France it was absolutely gorgeous yeah so of course what else can you have but Prosecco then you know so we ordered a bottle of that which was 30 euros so not ter- not terribly expensive um, and that kicked off the proceedings very well sounds lovely mm. a good start to the <laughs> evening what came next um, I actually chose a simple risotto. It was very, very. It sounded actually fantastic. It was butternut squash um, with crab meat. And then when I when I received it or when it actually came out, I could see that it was drizzled with a little bit of olive oil and a sprinkling of Parmesan shavings. Uh, it turned out to be a very luscious dish, a dish very uh, decadent, uh, while also very rustic and very simple in, in the other side. So it was a very, very nice way to start. Very filling, possibly, but um, that's my own fault, not the. That's Chefs. what I find with risotto. You have to be so careful with the portion size because it it can be extremely filling. It is a lovely dish now, one of my favourite dishes, I have to say. Yeah, in hindsight, I may well the next time order it as a main course because it is certainly filling, but uh, that's my said my error in ordering uh, when I don't have a very empty tummy. But uh, my husband actually ordered uh, the Azure's Mini Surf and Turf, which is getting back, I suppose, to that fish aspect. Um, it was gorgeous arrangement very very artful it had pork belly crackling sautéed prawns and then these plump yawning mussels just the way you like them um, there was again roasted butternut squash puree on the plate just a little swirl of it and then crumbled black pudding which Anthony absolutely adores so it was a real mix of sort of like land and sea very unusual combination I was just going to say yeah yeah but it was um, it was kind of a little taste of the terroir as well as um, a taste of you know Irish and the Atlantic Ocean um, and all that they that has to offer so it was a really really nice introduction to the different flavours that were going to come and for 10 euros very good value as well oh yeah that is great value and the other two people then that you were dining with how did they fare with their starters 
Um, I think they joined us late. They have a okay. small baby, so they skipped starters and, and went straight to uh, main course. Uh, as you know, babies sometimes can put the kibosh on, on uh, <laughs> dinner plans. So uh, they walked him around the block until he got tired in the heat and then joined us afterwards. So moving on to the main course then, what did you enjoy for a main course? Um, I think that I just had, uh, even though it was a gorgeously hot day, I got a hankering for beef. And sometimes, no matter what, um, nothing's going to sort of sate that except uh, some sort of steak or beef dish. So I had slow braised Hereford beef, which was served on a pillow of spring onion and chived mashed potatoes uh, with roasted root vegetables and then this lovely heady pool of red wine jus. So a very wintry dish uh, in hindsight. I ordered it because I sort of it appealed to me. I wanted it. But then when it came out, I went, oh, jeepers, am I going to be roasting altogether <laughs> this but no it turned out to be beautiful I suppose it was cooked with a quite a deft hand uh, the beef was fall apart tender the mash was nice and light and, and uh, kind of very fresh in its flavours as well so it didn't at any point feel that I felt um, too full or too full of stodge it didn't feel like that at all it was a very very um, hearty dish um, but also presented beautifully it had a very sort of refined uh, beauty a little curled parsnip crisps and uh, neatly stacked ingredients so it was, uh, in terms of presentation it ticked all the boxes and that's a difficult dish to present in a beautiful way sounds fabulous mm, it's very very nice I have to say of course I didn't eat all of it but Anthony quickly took up the mantle and uh, took care of the end of that and what did he have for himself that no doubt he did not share with you uh, there was a bit of a battle but I got a small bit of a taste it, uh, he had chunky pan fried fillets of monkfish um, they were served with sliced potatoes shredded leeks and wilted spinach um, with salty bacon lardon and uh, bear blanc so again that's the European influence I really felt there was, a, there was quite a, a French aspect to that dish um, and it was probably a well chosen dish for the evening in terms of the sun and being out there in the heat it was very very um, fresh and light meal and he enjoyed it an awful lot I'd say the server, when she was bringing or he was bringing the dishes out, expected the, the, the meat to go one direction and the fish to go a different direction. Absolutely, he did. Yeah, that, that, that tends to happen quite a lot, but he always ends up collecting both plates from Anthony. So uh, he gets the, <laughs> <laughs> the last laugh. After all that then, did you have room for dessert? Just about. Uh, we shared a dessert, which we often do because at that point, it's um, yeah, we're reaching the, the bounds of, uh, of satiety, I think. So we had uh, eaten mess, um, which I haven't had in years. Years nice, actually, yeah, yeah. Nice dessert. Again, this kind of um, traditional sort of harking back to childhood. Sometimes on an evening like that, you just want something, um, something sweet and something simple. And this ticked all the boxes. It was, uh, it was just this sort of slightly messy confection of meringue, whipped cream, and then droplets of berry and strawberry coulis. So it was a, a very nice, um, refreshing way to finish. Did you enjoy any wine whenever you were having your other courses? We made the Prosecco last. Um, that yeah, was, That was very skillful. <laughs> we did. We did um, for, for that meal anyway. We may have gone on for gin and tonic somewhere else, but we did. We made the Prosecco last. And it actually worked brilliantly. Um, it was a very sort of uh, off-dry um, particular Prosecco, so it, it worked well with all the other various different flavours. It wasn't empowered by anything, but uh, by uh, empower over... It wasn't, uh, <laughs> it stood up well, I suppose, to all the different dishes, um, but at the same time held its own. So it was perfect. In terms of price then, how did it fare in terms of the cost of the overall bill and value for money? Well, they do have um, quite good offers in terms of courses. Uh, they have €23 Euro for two courses or €28 Euro for three. Um, but it's a quite a restricted amount of dishes that are on that, um, th th those particular uh, value menus so we ended up ordering a little bit from each which comes up to a bit more expensive but, but not terribly either it was 96 euro in total that was two starters two mains a dessert and a bottle of Prosecco and the bottle of Prosecco was 30 euros exactly so whenever you take that out of it and it's 66 it, it's, euro yeah, yeah exactly yeah. which is about 30 euro ahead which is very very good so it sounds like you would recommend it I would definitely recommend it um, and it looked on that particular evening anyway that I, I'm not alone in that it was very very busy there were not a lot of people there so I would definitely advised to call ahead and reserve a table particularly outside um, I'm waiting for the next good day and I'm definitely going back to, to get that table again well fingers crossed that that day comes sooner rather than wouldn't later. it be nice it's not looking hopeful but yeah fingers crossed <laughs> so it's a Zura restaurant what is the exact address it's just down from City Hall or down from the potato market there exactly yeah. across from um, the courthouse as well it's beside the lock bar um, if you drive into Limerick on a sunny day basically just follow the crowds uh, you You'll, you'll always see them up there it's, on, it's actually called George's Key George's and it's only about I think two blocks away from King John's Castle as well so it's in that nice medieval quarter of Limerick 
Okay, great. So thanks very much for coming in to tell us all about that this evening. You'll be back next month with a new review for us. Tell us where you're heading to next. Um, I'm going further west. I'm going to uh, Dingle, which is always a nice place to Just in time for their food festival now that's at the end of September. Will we look forward to that? In the meantime, fingers crossed now for that sunny day. Thanks for coming in tonight. Thanks a million, Sharon. Great to be here. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. No visit to a restaurant is complete without some vino and in August 2016 it was all about Malbec with our resident wine guru Ron Forrestal. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ron, how are you this evening? Great, Sharon. And um, I was going to ask you, could we talk about Brazilian wines in line with the Olympics being on? But the closest we can do is um, a Malbec and you have a couple from Argentina and one from Chilean. Yes, Chilean, uh, South sorry. America. One from Chile, I should say. <laughs> yes, from South America, at least. Yeah, yeah, the Brazilian wine, there is Brazilian wine in the market. And uh, I actually had one at one stage. They, they produce a lot of wine. Um, but they have such a huge population for themselves, very little of it exported at all. Um, but they make some nice products. Uh, but by the time they're exported and get to here, they're probably a bit expensive for what people would pay for them, and there just isn't a market for them yet. But maybe eventually, you would know. Well, you never know when they're making peat wine <laughs> down the <laughs> it's road. True, absolutely. Anything can happen. In West Limerick, there could be fine Brazilian wine coming yes, absolutely, out of the yeah. country in a few years' time. But in the meantime, we have lovely Malbecs, and I. I assumed that Malbec was Argentinian, but that's not actually the case. No, but this is the case with everything, really, that the grape, uh, the, the grape variety Malbec originated in, in France, um, in the south of France, uh, Coteron, um, Cahors, down into Languedoc, um, all that south, huge wine producing area in the south of France. It originated there, but most all grape varieties did in one way or another, so that's not, um, that's not anything unusual. But... It's, it's like uh, Sauvignon Blanc going to New Zealand. It just found a really good home, works very well. And with Malbec going to Argentina, it's just a perfect climate to grow Malbec. So it is all about the climate. Absolutely. Is it a white grape, a red grape, a red black grape. grape? Okay, a red grape. And it's a fairly robust, full-bodied. Um, and the reason for that is that the Argentinians particularly eat so much red meat, they need a product that can really stand up to, to that kind of heavy flavours that they have. And hence they have a Malbec. They don't drink Pinot Noir or those light reds because they just don't have any food that's, that will manage them at all. But the reason I'm, I, I said we might talk about this even is just it exploded the popularity of it. It's, it's amazing. I've never seen a particular product like the, the grape Malbec to have the sales grow so much so quickly. Like five years ago, you'd struggle to find a wine list with a Malbec on it except a very big wine list. You know, they would have 40-plus wines in it. But if you had a standard wine list in a restaurant with 22 or 23 wines, there's no way a Malbec would have made that on. Whereas now I have wine lists with 27 or 28 wines in them and they'll have two Malbecs. And is that because we are more aware of what wines go well with what foods and because we are huge meat eaters in this country and people love going out for their, mm. for their good piece of steak in a restaurant? I think that's exactly it, really. I think that people got more discerning. Um, they're more interested in matching food. They're, now, the thing about Malbec is Malbec is, is a food wine. It's a difficult one to sit down at home with and drink without actually having dinner and having a, a reasonably substantial dinner now, not a, not a canopy or anything like that. You really need to eat with it. But it's, it's, it's probably that and the fact that there's so many of them being imported in the country now and the quality is really good and they're great value. Um, like they're... You can start buying them at 9, 10 euros, you can pay it, but if you pay 12 or 13 euros, you're into a really good product. And the French equivalent of that, if you buy it from the Côte d'Rhone, south of France, could be 18, 19, 20 euros for the same kind of quality. So you, if you do go for a French Malbec, you're going to be paying a lot more than you would Absolutely. if it was from South America. And the French tend to blend it, um, blend it with, when it goes to South America, um, Argentina in particular, the sunshine is much stronger. Um, it, it ends up being a slightly sweeter grape uh, that they use to finish whereas the French one isn't quite it's a bit, little bit rougher so they tend to blend it with Syrah or they blend it with Cabernet Franc or something else to smooth it out slightly but um, it, now it's not to everybody's taste now but the people who like it really like it and, um, and a lot of them don't drink anything else but we have I, I, I've one particular restaurant um, in Adair 
they use, they have a pouring in the bar, but they use it as a, one of the glass options in the bar. And they use six or eight cases a week of it. It's, um, it's amazing. It's the biggest selling red by the glass that they have. And in terms of alcohol percentage, is it up there like 13, oh, yeah, 14 absolutely. percent? Yeah, they range from 13 to 14 to 14.5 in some cases. Yeah. So it, it is, it's a good, strong wine. You would want to be having the food with it, really. You would absolutely <laughs> want to be eating with it. I think, I think it's a difficult one to, to um, manage without food. And I brought along three of them just to give an idea tonight, just to show you. Two from Argentina uh, and one from Chile, because Chile makes some really good Malbec as well. And it's a grape that works very well in Chile as well. Just that Chile is so popular for Merlot, Cabernet and, um, and Carmenere that Malbec is, is grown in much smaller quantities. But the three I've brought, so I've brought two from Argentina at two different price levels, really. We have a Donna Parra Malbec, which is probably one of my most uh, popular red wines in all. Um, and that would, that, that would cost about nine euros a bottle. And then I have the Pascal Tosso, which is a, a bit more upmarket. Uh, they're both from Mendoza in Argentina, um, which is a beautiful place in Argentina. It's like going back into the 60s or 70s, a lot of old cars, that kind of thing. It's really nice place. And Pascal Tosso is one of their best producers, and this is about a 12, 13 euro bottle of wine. There's a big difference in those now. That tw- the one that, that, that gets 12 or 13 euros is much finer, uh, flavor lasts much longer, but uh, both, both quite similar. Then the Chilean one, this is from Vuminent, which is a producer that, that we use a lot of product from the Sauvignon Blanc and Merlot and everything else as well. But this is their secret uh, Malbec, and it's a beautiful product. Again, around 13 euros a bottle. A really nice part. And the two uh, Argentinian ones, they're screw tops. Yeah. And the Chilean one is cork. Is there any significance in that? No, just that the whole range, uh, this secret range from Vuminant, they all use corks. Malbec ages quite well. So you can, if you have one for two or three years, it'll age quite well. Okay, so it's it's not like the peat wine, which is designed to drink rot young. You should, You can put your Malbec away and, and it Absolutely. just gets, it improves with yeah, age. Improve, if anything, it softens out. Whereas when they're drank young, they tend to be slightly powerful and kind of robust as a red. And as the longer they're left, the smoother they get. But now some people like the robustness. That's why mm. they drink them young. But they, they age very well. And they're used in, in, in France a lot as where they use 10 or 15% of Malbec to give a particular characteristic to the red that they're making. The Argentinian ones there, you've been out there and you've visited the vineyards. Yeah, I've been in, I was lucky enough to go to Argentina a few years ago, um, to Mendoza in Argentina, because it's quite close to Chile, you know, it's just over the other side of the, the, the Andes. So yes, uh, luckily I was in Mendoza, which is one of the nicest places I've ever been. And they're, and they really like Irish people. Like, you know, we always say other countries are very welcoming to Irish people. They really like Irish people. They have a huge history of the two countries. And, um, the streets named after, after Irish counties, amazing, amazing. So it is, but it's lovely, and they really, and, and they get a bad press uh, for wine for a number of years because they export a lot of really cheap product, because they've uh, they had a lot of home market to fill and a South American market to fill, whereas Chile did the opposite thing. Chile exported a lot of very good product because they wanted to break into the market, and Argentina did it slightly the wrong way, whereas now they're trying to catch up, uh, whereas. Argentinian wine is more popular than Chilean wine in the UK. Yet in Ireland, Chilean wine outsells Argentina by 20 to 1. And why is that? Because Chilean wine is just so uh, affordable. You know, it's just, it's, I go to house wine in restaurants and hotels. Uh, there's a Chilean, one of the Chilean, one of the house wines would be Chilean in 90% of those places. My perception of Chilean wine would be that it wouldn't be as good quality as Argentina's wine would be. Argentina would be delighted with that. Uh, is that I mean, is that? I mean, that's just a perception I have. You know, I've nothing to back it up. But I have to say now, when I see the label for that, the secret mm. wine that you have there, that label I feel doesn't maybe reflect the quality of the wine it's too funky it's too modern it is well, they actually have an artist uh, a ch- famous Chilean artist does a label for each of the ranges yeah so that's, that's very a, modern or it something. is very modern yeah, yeah. whereas the uh, Argentinians are much more classic they tend to go for a much more classic look and then you see I think that just you know from a marketing perspective and the brand and that just you know it's like a, they say about a book and how the cover sells mm. a book 
that it's very important to get it right with the packaging with anything I suppose is the same but when you look at those labels if you had to if you didn't know the price of them or anything Mm. else where they came from or what sort of wine they were even the other the labels for the Argentinian wines I think you'd you tend to go for them before you would the it does yeah and that means an awful lot in retail um, in supermarkets and in, in wine shops that means an awful lot because you're deciding everything on what you think on your perception of the bottle uh, because you haven't tasted them a lot of the time so that's the restaurants don't have the same issue because you can't see it so you've ordered it and it arrives and you don't have that kind of um, uh, decision to make so it's yeah you're right absolutely um, I think they're um, the other labels that that Vuminant use in all their other ranges are much more classic labels this is just a particular range that they put into these with this um, Ch- Chilean artist and have you visited any of the vineyards in Chile I have yeah see uh, I, I was in Argentina because we went to Chile oh, okay and was we this like a holiday or was this a no, working work. trip no, okay work. yeah because um, you go that far you have to yeah. make the most make, of it yeah of course yeah. and it's it's only a, f- a flight over uh, takes about an hour to get from Santiago to Mendoza and when you go on a trip like that you go to the vineyards you go to lots of different vineyards you taste a lot of wine you spit out a lot of wine yeah well lucky enough we went um i've been to chile a couple of times but we went first time we went with a brand that kind of are very brand focused so you you taste their wine basically for eight days in a row um the second time we were much more uh, objective because we were visiting three different wineries at the time which meant that we were um we've seen a lot of wine that was outside of what we were used to because there's no point going to Chile and tasting the same wine that you sell when you're in Ireland well yeah I suppose it's meant to be an opportunity (laughs) to diversify the portfolio and add a few new wines to it and be able to come home and talk about them Uh, I think absolutely but it's amazing amount of people um, you know you think uh, it's it's probably not you know meeting people who own restaurants and who run restaurants and it's probably not them that have been to South America, but the amazing amount of their kids have been to South America. Do you know where they've gone on a gap around year the and world gone and different six things down? Yeah. I know people who've, who've I've arranged, you know, um, to visit. Either I've arranged a bit of work for a couple of kids who wanted to do two or three weeks um, in Argentina. Are very open to that. They, they don't pay them or anything now, but <laughs> they'll give them something to do for a couple of weeks if they wanted. And but maybe uh, the odd glass of wine. Yeah, but they're great for visiting. These people love to see people coming. That's good to know, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but it's a great experience, and 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 they're they're fairly big operations. All of them. There's not that many small wineries in either Chile or Argentina, unlike France, which is you know hundreds of small farmer kind of stroke winemakers. They don't have that. They have much bigger operations. Generally. Well, very interesting to talk about it. Just remind us then about the three bottles and the price for each of them. Yes. There. So we have two Argentinian Malbecs. Um, one called Don Aparo, which costs about nine euros a bottle. Then the the upper level from Argentina is from uh, Mendoza and Argentina as well. It's Pascal Tosso, um, that's costing around thirteen euros a bottle. And the Chilean version is from Vuminant, called Secret, and that's about thirteen euros as well. Okay, great. And if people want to get in touch with you to put an order in the websites forestal.ie. All your details are there. Yep. And you have the Facebook page and Twitter as well. Absolutely. Ron, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming in this Thanks evening. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to this second helping show of Best Possible Taste when you get a chance to hear previously aired interviews. Next up, it's vegetarian food with Sid Sheehan from County Kerry's Nourish by Nature. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Sid, you're very welcome to the studio tonight. Thanks for having me back in again. And the subject tonight is vegetarian food. Vegetarian diet, or we'll call it a healthy vegetarian diet. Yeah, I, I, I love whenever I'm out in restaurants now, I see in vegetarian dishes on the menu, and I would, I could tend to go for them more than I would for a meat dish, depending on what it is, of course. Sometimes they can be lacking in flavour. They can be a bit disappointing. They can be, yeah. And I know now you're going to have a, a really fantastic recipe 
for us before you go tonight. We'll, we'll wait until the end of the interview to share that. But pens at the ready for the listeners. A bit of a heads up there. Um, how do we health? How how can you be healthy when you're just eating vegetarian and you're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins that meat provide to a non-vegetarian? Okay, so look, to follow a healthy vegetarian diet, people have been following vegetarian diet for hundreds, for thousands of years, and they were perfectly healthy because they ate vegetables. There's so many vegetarians out there that I meet and the first thing they say is I don't really like vegetables so then you're kind of defeating the purpose of following a vegetarian diet that's what it's all about is going back to good plant-based whole foods now you'll come across I certainly have come across vegetarians they live on refined carbs like potatoes bread pasta that's kind of the extent of it we look actually at your typical uh, vegetarian at the moment in Ireland Um, okay some of them not all of them but we'll take a teenager who decides to be a vegetarian because it's cool or trendy or because their friend is doing it so they're going to do it as well uh, again, look, we're not going to not saying that everybody that follows a vegetarian diet is doing it for those reasons. Many of them are doing it because of the ethical reasons, because of animal welfare, which is all great. But some of them, their breakfast will consist of cereal. Their mid-morning snack will probably consist of chocolate bar, biscuits or crisps. Their lunch, um, I've certainly seen it myself, probably a white crusty roll or something like that filled with potato salad and a bit of cheese. So, so far up to lunch then, there's very little nutrition gone in there. Dinner time is probably going to be something like pasta with uh, jarred tomato sauce. Um, if you're going to go for something like that, at least make the tomato sauce yourself. Jarred tomato sauce have a huge, um, I think it was actually recently enough, uh, Dalmio or one of the big food producers, they actually came out and they advised their uh, customers not to eat their jarred sauces more than once a week because of the high sugar content in them. Uh, So that could be dinner for your typical vegetarian. There's no veg gone in there so far, apart from the potatoes or whatever. Um, Again, it's just high refined carbohydrates, very little fiber or complex fiber, um, complex carbs. So um, what they should be eating. We'll go back and look at some of the benefits of following a vegetarian diet, first of all. Uh, So... There's no doubt about it, it is a healthy eating plan. Uh, you're going to greatly reduce your risk of an awful lot of chronic degenerative diseases and illnesses. Um, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, some cancers, cardiovascular disease, cholesterol. These would all be associated with, or a lot of them can be associated with, uh, overconsumption of red meat and animal fat. Red meat isn't really the problem, but it's the processed meats that are the problem. Um, so if you're going to eliminate all of those, you're obviously going to re- greatly reduce your risk of developing any of the conditions. Provided you're eating a healthy vegetarian diet, not a lots of like processed Absolutely, yeah. vegetarian yeah. So it's, it is common sense. You, know? like you can't expect to follow a vegetarian diet eating uh, bread and pasta with no fruit or veg intake and expect to feel the benefits. Um, a lot of people they will suffer fatigue uh, straight off uh, they will become anemic because uh, they're not getting the iron in if you're not getting your iron from red meat you need to be getting it from green veg so again calcium all the vital vitamins and minerals that you would be getting um, if you're going to have a refined diet you're not going to get what you need but would you need to eat an awful lot of spinach to get the same amount of iron out of that that you would not necessarily any green veg um, so if you were a red meat eater and okay if you change your eating habits and you eliminate red meat 100% and if you're a strict vegetarian once you get in your three or four portions of green veg so dark leafy green veg are the best sources Um, kale, spinach, rocket, sprouts, cabbages, uh, bok choy, broccoli, all of these ones will give you more than enough. Uh, So you'll get plenty. Uh, Another benefit to a vegetarian diet is it's much easier on your digestion. Meat is difficult to digest. Mm. So animal protein, it is. Mm. And it can put your digestive system under an awful lot of undue stress. So following a vegetarian diet again, you're going to eliminate all of those problems and the associated illnesses that can go with them. Uh, Another thing that you're going to eliminate from your diet if you're a vegetarian is all the nasty chemicals that are added into processed meats. Even look at... um 
rashers and sausages and stuff like that. The amount of nitrates and nitrites, these are all food preservatives that are added in there. You've got solutions that are pumped with huge amounts of salt and sugar that are pumped into meat. You'd never think that there's sugar put into meat, but there's these liquid solutions that are pumped into them. So you're uh, eliminating all of those as well. Something as well, you know, if you're eating red meat stuff that you buy in the supermarket if you go in and if you see two nice strip line steaks in a packet and it's really bright vibrant red color in the packet meat shouldn't really look like that unless it's fresh if you cut a piece of meat and if you leave it exposed to oxygen it's going to turn brown on the edge on the outer edges straight away so um there that's an example of chemicals that are put in there they take out the oxygen it's gas flushed and to retain its bright vibrant color um so and of course you have to be careful whenever you're buying the salads and things like that that you should be buying them that they're not pre-packed or anything like that because they're pumping air and different things into those bags of salads as well yeah they are uh they're pumping lots of stuff in there they're taking out the oxygen and they're putting in um, they're just gas flushed Um, there's a lot of different chemicals and stuff added to them so you'll know yourself if you open a bag of mixed salad leaves it's nice and fresh and crisp looking you open it within half an hour it's wilted that's right yeah we had um, Joanna Blythman wrote a book called Swallow This and she's been on the show here and that's something that she'd be talking about and about those lettuces being washed like volume of them being washed in the same water with God knows what chemicals in it as yeah, well. They use a lot of, yeah, they use a lot of... Yeah, I think they use chemicals like chlorine and stuff like this yeah. in there. They don't really have much place in the human diet, so, you know, they shouldn't be using them. Mm-hmm. I don't think any, it's my opinion. Um, there was actually a very good programme running, I think, in recent months on RTE. Um, what are you eating? I'd like to see if they would run it again, actually, because each week they'd cover a different topic and it was really, really interesting. And they actually covered um, the salad leaves and stuff like that in one of their one of their programs. But anyway, just getting back. So that's some of the benefits associated with a vegetarian diet. Now, what we want to be aware of is if you're following a vegetarian diet, what do you need to be aware of if you're cooking for a vegetarian? If you have a child in the family that decides to be vegetarian, um, again, for whatever reason, it doesn't really matter what their reason is, uh, but as a parent, you have to ensure that they're getting a good balanced diet, that they're getting all the essential vitamins and minerals that they will need. Uh, one of my biggest concerns would be children that decide to opt for a vegetarian diet. Are they getting enough protein? Protein is vital for children. It's vital for everybody, but children in particular, they need it for, it's the building blocks of life, so they need it for um, bone structure, for building muscle, for everything, building the cells in their body. So children need protein. If they're not getting it from animal protein, they need to get it from plant-based protein, uh, which would be things like beans, nuts, seeds, these kind of plant-based proteins. Well, you say beans... Is the tin of Heinz baked beans? It's, okay. it's not. It's there, but it's not ideal. Okay, there is protein in the bean, but uh, unfortunately, it's overshadowed by the amount of sugar that's pumped into them. So, really, you'd be looking at uh, mixed beans, chickpeas, stuff like this. They're really good sources. Uh, bean burgers, uh, lentils. Actually, the recipe that we're going to go through shortly is um, a nice lentil and brown rice burger. So, it's a good one, especially for kids, because you can. All the bits inside it, they're kind of easily disguised. So um. I got a delicious chickpea and sweet potato curry from Lizzie's Little Kitchen in okay. the Stowell Market there a couple of weeks ago and was enjoying it at home. And the five-year-old says, can I taste it? I said, yes, OK. And she wanted some in her own bowl and she wanted more than I'd given her. And I was really enjoying it, <laughs> didn't really want to share it. And um, she'd taste it and said, oh, yeah, I like that. And uh, I'd be delighted now that she's eating things like that, but just not in that occasion when I was really enjoying it. <laughs> and I did not want to share it with her. But that's just an aside. And there was loads of chickpeas in that. And the yeah, sweet it's potato. brilliant to start. Like foods like that, they are more commonplace even on menus when you're eating out. You go into the shop, you can buy a little tub of salad that will have all these bits and pieces inside. And But again, if you're buying stuff like that in the supermarket, be aware it has a shelf life, so it will have preservatives in it. Um, make your own vegetarian food is quite cheap as well to produce so at home it's going to straight away you're going to make a saving with it um no, that's the kids and losing out on the protein. Children also need huge volumes of carbohydrate for energy, particularly um, complex carbohydrates. So just to ensure that they get enough of whole grains, brown bread, brown rice, brown pasta, stuff like this, that they're not living on the white refined carbohydrates. Um, teenage girls in particular. 
because I think it's when when a, a girl will hit maybe 12, 13, 14 that's when it's trendy to be vegetarian and it also correlates with they're starting to go through puberty so one of the Do girls tend to go for being vegetarians more so than the males? They do um, yeah the ratio at the moment in Ireland is about 2 to 3 in the past it would have been more um, in the past it was mainly females that would kind of adopt um, a vegetarian diet uh, men wouldn't there was something wrong with you you weren't a man if you didn't eat red meat in Ireland <laughs> but now it's kind of ratio would be 2 to 3 male to female so 3 females to every three females 2 females to, yeah. okay. okay but um, teenage girls in particular if you're not getting in the iron from red meat and if they're not eating their green veg and getting that when they do start to menstruate they are going to to lose out on a lot of iron so if you have a teenage girl who is having heavy periods for whatever reason she can be losing out on all of her iron stores and then quickly she can develop um anemia or she become anemic okay so plenty of spinach there and, and the yeah, green veg just do as a parent if you are cooking because let's face it most teenagers aren't going to be cooking for themselves they will be relying on parents don't rely on stuff like frozen uh, veggie burgers I don't know if you've ever tried them but by and large they consist of grated carrot sweet corn they're probably held together with mash and they're coated in breadcrumbs that's about all that's in there so there's no real nutritional value in them well you have a fabulous burger recipe for us now it's oh, uh, my one is a little bit better than yeah, those kind I, of ones. I'm sure it is now. Red lentil and brown rice burger. Now, this isn't the first time a burger has featured. You you had a lovely burger before for us for one of the, the previous shows. Yeah, I did. Um, I like to do stuff like this. Um, I always cover something like this at the, at the cookery school when I'm doing classes, whatever the class might be, because first of all, they're budget friendly. All the recipes that I kind of put together, they're always budget friendly for people. It's easy to source ingredients. Uh, you can make them in bulk and hope that the whole family will enjoy them because if you're making something like a burger it's a good way of disguising veggies and stuff for getting into young kids and stuff so what do we need for this recipe okay so your red lentil and brown rice burger not an awful lot of ingredients um so we'll we'll work through it i will put this up on the uh, on the website anyway if anybody misses out so what you need for this this will make six large burgers so one of these is more than enough per person per adult um, if you want, you can make eight or ten slightly smaller ones out of it. So you'll need 300 grams of red lentils. These are the split lentils. Extremely affordable. Um, you'll need 375 grams of cooked brown rice. So that's the cooked weight that you'll need. You need a teaspoon of red chilli, just for a little bit of heat and a bit of flavour. Um, two tablespoons of fresh coriander, finely chopped. One red onion, finely diced, or a white onion, whichever you have handy. Um, two cloves of garlic crushed. Plenty of salt and pepper because lentils and rice can be fairly bland. And just a little bit of rapeseed oil for frying. So we'll work through the method. Again, fairly easy to do. You can make them in bulk and you can even freeze them down when they're cooked. So wash the lentils under cold running water um, until the water kind of runs clear. Um, place them in a heavy base pot uh, with 450 mils of water bring them up to the boil once they come to the boil reduce the heat keep stirring them until, until the lentils are soft and mushy so they'll break down almost into a paste that's the first stage take them off the heat and leave them to cool down slightly so then at the same time you can cook your brown rice when it's cooked and uh, drained you weigh out 375 grams of it you can use brown long grain you can use brown basmati whichever one you have so then you need to add everything together in the bowl place the lentils the cooked and cooled rice your chopped onion your garlic your chilli your coriander you can flavour it with a few other bits and pieces if you want a little bit of curry powder a bit of ground cumin whatever spices you might like yourself uh, season it fairly generously with salt and pepper and give it a good mix so divide it into six portions if you want nice main course size ones so that'll stick together as it is that will hold it because the the starch in the rice will help help to gel it together okay. the lentils when they're cooked into like um, a mush they'll help gel the whole thing together as well uh, divide it into six portions now it's a good idea just to dampen your hands under um, under a running tap and it's easier to shape them uh, they won't stick to everything shape them into six individual burgers maybe about half an inch in thickness chill them in the fridge then for 30 to 40 minutes until they firm up a little bit so that's the key really to stopping them falling apart when you put them into the pan is to yeah 
have them the chilled down. You can even have this done a day in advance if you want. The longer they're in the fridge, the better. So the longer you leave them chilled down, the better um, in results you'll have. Uh, so take them back out of the fridge. Heat some rapeseed oil in a decent non-stick pan and fry them just either side two or three minutes just until they're browned on the outside and heat it through. So that everything is cooked in there already. You, there's no fear of it being undercooked or anything. So it's really just to heat it through. Have one of those per person and because they're it's a huge source of plant protein like we discussed so you're getting that from your lentils you're getting the complex carbs from your brown rice it's a good way really really filling really healthy very little fat in there there's no simple carbs or breadcrumbs or anything like that in there and it has the added bonus as well of being gluten free if your vegetarian happens to be um, gluten free as well okay and you're putting it up on the Nourished by Nature website which is we're going to get that up on the website and that is nourishedbynature.ie and you'll also find this on Facebook at Nourished by Nature Listold. Lovely. Sid, great to talk to you as always and thanks for sharing that recipe That's with great us. to be back in, Sharon. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to this second helping show of Best Possible Taste when you get a chance to hear previously aired interviews. We're at the final guest of the evening and it's with the lovely Teresa Story, a.k.a. Green Aproness, who visited the Best Possible Taste studio in June 2016 to talk about her first cookbook, Fruit on the Table. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Teresa, you're very welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming in to show us your fantastic book, your debut book, Fruit on the Table, Seasonal Recipes from the Green Apron Kitchen. It just looks fabulous. I had a quick flick through there and there's some of my all-time favourite preserves, cakes, things in it really that I'd never make at home because I feel that there's an awful lot of effort involved. But these recipes seem to be quite simple and straightforward. I'm all about the laziness and doing it as quickly as possible and as easily as possible. Plus, most of the recipes, um, the baking recipes, I've worked on with my kids and they don't want to be faffing around for ages. So these are what we make at our house. The green apron will be well known to people that frequent the milk market or other high-end food markets that are are familiar with the Blossom Erin and the Great Taste Awards because a number of your products have won awards and you're in there every Saturday. Come rain or shine. Or minus nine degrees. Logging your wares. And tell me this now, you've captured a lot of the recipes in here. Are you not worried that people will stop buying off you because they can make some of these items themselves? Um, people can be very lazy. I don't mind. They can use, take the recipes. They can try. Yeah, let's let's hope they, they'll improve their own uh, preserving because I've put in all the tips and tricks that I use. But do you know what? They'll make some of them and then they'll come back and buy the rest of mine. So yeah, Well, I definitely am one of those lazy people. So there's there's probably no fear of me. But you never know now because you do make some of the, the recipes seem very straightforward. And you were telling me about your favorite recipe. Just tell the, the, the listeners what it is. My favorite recipe in the book is the microwave lemon curd recipe. I really love lemon curd, but, you know, it takes forever and you're faffing around with Bam Marie's. So one of my fellow ICA, late, ICA ladies, and told me she makes hers in the microwave. So I went, oh. And so I went home and looked through all my recipes and blended them all together and came up with a idiot proof because I can do it half asleep and the kids can all do it. Uh, Seven minute microwave lemon curd and it takes two bowls and none of this messing around and it tastes fantastic. A microwave, Teresa. You're surprised me now that you use a microwave. Do you know what? (laughs) Speed, man, speed. (laughs) The other... um, the other is it like cake that's in here it's a very quick cake to make my busy day cake it is really quick it's it's a mixture of uh, one I got out of a recipe book that I had in college and also my grandma used to make it and it's really quick it has things that you always have in the house instead of using butter it uses a little bit of sunflower oil and I used to make it all the time in college because you always had that stuff you had an immediate cake and I usually serve it covered in berries but you can have it with chocolate and ice cream and depending 
depending on how you're sweet tooth. And it's one of the first cakes I taught my kids to make because it's so quick and simple. I think I might put the lemon curd on top of it. Mm, That would be nice. I might actually do those two things one of the days. Now, we were talking there about a number of the products are award-winning, great taste, Blossna Erin. Is that because you grow a lot of your own produce, do you think? Um, I think we, I think a lot of it is that we grow our own produce, but it's also that I'm really, really careful about what I do. You know, I, I'm watching every second and the jam comes off this second. It's ready. None of this boiling it to be sure that it has a really, really long shelf. Like, like a lot of, um, com- big commercial producers can't spend the time and care on it. And, and also they're, they're hiring people to do it who don't care or love and, and, you know, are just there for a paycheck. Whereas I would be embarrassed to not have the best. Okay. You're very passionate what you do from the ground up, literally yeah. growing everything in Ballangari. Tell us about some of the items that you grow out there. Um, we, we've got a couple of hundred feet of uh, raspberries and we've got loganberries, we've got blackcurrants. I've got nectarines in my polytunnel, which was an unexpected delight because the nectarine tree grew from a pit in my compost, Stephen. I was going, what is that weed? And now I've got a seven foot high nectarine. I'm so excited. I, I, I can't believe a nectarine tree would grow in Ireland. It's it's, it's fantastic. Especially we live on a north windy hillside. So I'm so happy. You know. And okay, they're not quite as big as the ones you get in the shops, but they're just as juicy. And I grew them. So, you know, you said there about where you live, you're a West Limericker, but people will be saying that's not a West Limerick accent. So tell us about where Teresa was born and grew up? Um, I was born in Detroit, but uh, I grew up in Clare, out the back of the airport. So I'm really from Clare, up the banner. So my dad's from Derry and mom's American, Finnish American. So um, we're kind of mongrelly. And when you were in your 20s, they moved to West Limerick. Yeah, when I was in my early 20s, mom and dad uh, moved to West Limerick. They wanted a house with more land so that we could grow more stuff because mom had the green apron business before I did. Everybody's worked in it, everybody in the family. Everybody's been there, all my siblings, freezing in the rain on Saturday mornings So and working in the garden. And your own children are very much involved in the business. They're, they help me every Saturday. They do all the labor. They help me with the marketing. They grudgingly help me with everything. <laughs> they were now that they're in their twenties and teens, they're less inclined to help. And your daughter was a hand model in the book. My girls helped so much. Um, Bella was the hand model for. She was putting. She's our pastry chef at home. She's the most amazing baker, and so it's her hands that are putting together the finished prune tarts that are my grandma's favorite recipe, and. All through the summer when we were photographing, the girls helped me make everything and were the runners going, here, we need another tea cloth to look at, put in this photograph. Ooh, run and get a rose. And so the girls were, I couldn't have done it without them. So And your photographer was Val O'Connor from Limerick, and who has a couple of books out herself. So she would have had a really good insight into your side of the counter so to speak yes and oh my god we learned so much from Val because we knew nothing about food styling now we're way better now we're still not as good as Val or a man whose uh, new book Modern Format is amazing but um, we're way better so we we learned a lot over that summer intense summer of photographing when you saw it for the first time how did you feel it was kind of like having a baby (laughs) yeah it was uh, it was just like, oh, my heart kind of stopped. It's like, oh, look, that's mine. That's me on the front of a book. That's amazing. And to have a publisher then and a publicist and everything, it must be a hugely proud moment for you. Do you know, I kind of still can't quite believe it. I can't believe it's me. Do you know, this, this is just our normal life. It was something that you had kind of on your to-do list or your wish list for a few years, wasn't it? It is. um, I always knew that I wanted to write a jam book because I had some really bad jam that people made. And um, it's like, it's not not rocket science once you have the techniques, uh, but they didn't know them. And 
the what's on the internet is just repeating other bad recipes. You know, you look up a recipe and somebody's repeated it 60 times. You know, every website has the same bad recipe slightly changed. So my recipes are really good. Well, you call it a jam, but but it's so much more than that. Yes. Um, we've got, it's about 50% preserves. And then I kind of worked through everything that we have through the year um, using fruit, using whatever is in season. It, it's from starting with making your Seville orange marmalade the first week of January through the blood oranges and then making rhubarb coffee cake and rhubarb jam and rhubarb relish. And then my next favorite is strawberry pie, strawberry glaze pie. We never have pies, strawberry pies here. And I did a lot of pies in the book because, you know, we eat a lot of apple tart here, but we don't eat a lot of really good pies. And sure, I grew up with that being American, half American. So, Well, there's a lot of different cultures in it as well. You're talking about American, you're talking about Finnish, your grandmother, yeah. some of her recipes in it. So it must be lovely to capture some of those heritage type recipes in it. It is. And it, uh, I think it makes it a little bit more pan-European, you know, you know, with grandma's recipes. We also have some blueberry recipes using the wild blueberries, which finish recipes as well. So I got a lot of recipes, not just from my family, but from my friends who've given it to me. And now we've incorporated them into our regular recipe repertoire. You're growing all the time then. You're picking, you're preserving. It, it We're must always. All the time. And you get, you do, you, do, you would admit that you do get fed up making certain things. So then you kind of diversify off from a preserve to you were talking about a core deal to me just before we started yes uh, I, in the middle of summer you've got a million blackcurrants now you've made a rake of jam and you're looking at it and you've you can't top and tail any more blackcurrants because it's such a pain you make cordial and I had a customer last Saturday asking me what she was going to do with the rest of her blackcurrants that were in the freezer because she had made so much jam. I'm like, make cordial for the grandchildren. Use very little sugar and you've got homemade Ribena. Fantastic. Happy children. Happy vitamin seed up children. Absolutely, yeah. I'd say, that, yeah. I'd say, yeah, there's huge vitamins in that, yeah. Yeah. And so much better for you than the bottle. And, you know, it's barely cooked and you've just sweetened it enough you know, that wee bit of sugar, it's not going to do anything except make them happy. So if listeners want to get a copy of the book or find out more about Green Apron or even buy some of your products, you're in the milk market? Every Saturday morning. Okay. If they want to buy it online, I presume it's available online? It's available online. It should be in every bookstore. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Okay. And O'Brien Press, directly from O'Brien Press, my publishers. Well, listen, it is a beautiful book. Congratulations. I'm Thank delighted you very much. You. We talked about it, I'd say, gosh, it must be a year ago now. So it was very much on my radar and I was delighted to see it being launched. So well done and the best of luck with it. Thank you very much. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Thanks for listening to tonight's Best Possible Taste Second Helpings. Until next time, from me, Sharon Noonan, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!